Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I'm Joe Wolfond, and I'm joined remotely, as always, by my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. What is going on? My friend, the NBA has officially announced that an All-Star game is happening. Seemed for a while that that was going to be the case, but they refused to make the official announcement, uh, whether to give themselves some leeway, potentially, to swerve if another COVID outbreak happened, or I guess if the optics seemed to be beyond reproach, which you'd think the latter had actually happened, and that seems to have not deterred them. So this All-Star game is happening March 7th in Atlanta with uh, skills competition, three-point shootout, and a dunk contest all sprinkled in. They're going to do the entire All-Star weekend. They're going to cram it in in one night. And we have starters for this game that have officially been chosen. The thing that's actually really crazy to me about this is like, how are they going to convince any players to fly down to Atlanta to compete in like a skills competition? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I know for the game, they get fined. Like if if you're selected to be an all-star and you just don't go... um, without an injury or a valid excuse, you get fined. I don't know what it's like for the skills competition. I mean, guys can turn down the invitation, I suppose. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. Because typically it's like, you know, the All-Star All-Star week is a break. And yet, I think for, for a player who gets invited to, even if it's something as silly as, like, the skills competition that's going to be over in, like, 10 minutes, there's something, there's a prestige, there's something fun about participating in all-star weekend and it's kind of like a big party and you go down and you get to be a part of like the whole experience throughout the weekend and obviously that's not going to be the case it's taking place in one night there's i mean as far as we know not going to be any partying and we'll see what james harden says about that yeah (laughs) um so yeah i i just think it's uh that's, that's a crazy thing to ask somebody to do it's a crazy thing to ask somebody to, to play in this game or to participate in this weekend in any capacity, but that's not really what we're here to talk about. Whether you or I agree that this is a good idea, uh, the NBA Players Union agreed to do it, um, despite some apparent pushback from several star players around the league. So here we go. We're going ahead with this. The starters have been announced, and what we're going to do today is comb through the many, many deserving reserve candidates in both conferences to try and come up with a couple of all-star rosters that both of us feel okay about. So the way that we're going to do this, we'll we'll do it sort of like a draft where Cash and I will go back and forth making our picks. And we may not agree with each other's picks, but we will have to live with them. And in that way, we will come up with official Pound the Rock sanctioned all-star rosters in the East. And whether the we whether we agree or not, we will have to be as enthused about our combined all-star teams as the NBA players are with their uh, Players Association's decision to play in the all-star game. <laughs> yeah, feel the excitement. It is palpable. Uh I, I am excited for this exercise way more so than I am for the All-Star game itself because, I mean, this to me is the fun, right? It's it's trying to decide 
who is deserving. It's giving players their flowers for the incredible performances that they've had. Um, you know, measuring players against each other, splitting hairs, getting into the minutia. That's what's fun about this for me. So here are the starters in the East and the West. Um, in the East, we've got Embiid, Giannis, and Kevin Durant in the front court, and Bradley Beal and Kyrie Irving in the back court. And in the West, LeBron, Kawhi, Nikola Jokic in the front court, Steph Curry, Luka Doncic in the back court. Before we dive into picking the reserves, Cash, anything that surprised you there? The only surprise is is that Bradley Beal got the start and that if you look at the the fan vote he did quite well like i think ben goliver tweeted out the the total fan vote across both conferences yesterday and look i know it's different conferences they they weren't competing against each other different positions even but uh to see bradley beal get more fan votes for example than luka doncic and Kawhi leonard was pretty incredible I did not see that coming. Um, I would have had Dame over Doncic, uh, you know, as a starter. And uh, I wouldn't have had Beal as a starter. But yeah, we'll we'll get to, you know, who who our reserves are. But let's just say in general, I've got no problems with those 10 guys getting passes to All-Star Week. I was going to say weekend. To All-Star Sunday. (laughs) All-Star Day. Yeah. Yeah, I think basically the three front court spots in both conferences were like ironclad locks, no brainers. Um, The Steph Curry spot in the West also to me, a no brainer. I really think the only spots that were kind of up for debate in the starting lineups were those two backcourt spots in the East and the second one in the West. I agree. I would have had Dame there starting. So did the players and so did the media in that vote. It was the fan vote that ultimately tipped that toward Luca, which, you know, Give the fans what they want, I suppose. Um, the whole reason they're doing the Adam game, Silver's, according to Adam Silver. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. That's why they're doing this, apparently. Um, and Adam, if you're listening, honestly, don't do us any favors. But, okay, so so let's Adam, start if you're East. listening, the, f- the fans are all right. They have this podcast to listen to, all right? They have our All-Star Picks podcast to listen to. They don't need the game. We will happily do a pod every single day of All-Star Week if it can keep these players out of Atlanta and give them an actual break. Um, okay, Cash, starting with you. Do you want to start on the guard side or the front court side of things for East Reserves? Let's start with the guards. Okay, and give me your let's first pick. Start with the best guard in the Eastern Conference, starter or not, James Harden. I know that he didn't start the season in the Eastern Conference. I know that uh, in many ways, in terms of his commitment to the season and his fitness level and all that you could argue he didn't start the season at all until the trade with Brooklyn happened in mid-January he started the season in a fat suit as we well know (laughs) yeah uh and you know what it's turned out well for him he got to Brooklyn and since he got there he's been absolutely balling he has been look Kyrie's had a great season and I'd still say James Harden has been their best guard like he's been that good and uh he even Kept them afloat and then some uh, for a few games there with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving both out. Kyrie's back now, but you know, a few nights ago, I can't even think of who they played now when he had 38 and 11. Against to, Phoenix. Against Phoenix, yeah, to beat the Suns without yeah. KD. Poor, poor DeAndre Ayton just like kept yeah. getting dragged out to the perimeter yeah. and just feasted toasted to a fine crisp. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean, 
you know, one thing I, I know I've noted on this uh, podcast over the last few seasons, and I always bring it up, is like I keep a a running log of uh, you know between watching games as much as I can, uh, diving into the box scores, traditional and advanced, and you know if I can't watch every game because it's impossible to watch full games of every single game played, I'll at least watch like a condensed version and and make sure I'm into the box score and the advanced box score, and I try to come up with who was the best player on the court for every single game played in every season. The last couple of years, Harden has been 1-2 with Giannis. This year, he's a little lower on the list because, as I mentioned, he essentially didn't start the season until mid-January. Like, that was not as good as he was that first month. It wasn't James Harden. And uh, and even though he kind of gave the league that three-week head start, he's already up into, like, my top 15 for the amount of times he's been the best player on the court. And he's already number one among Nets, if you can believe that, right? On a team with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, he didn't get there till a month later, and he's already number one. So uh, I guess we can split hairs about whether you reward a guy for, you know, what's barely a full month of great basketball, but it's James Harden. He deserves to be an all-star, and I would have had him as a starter. Yeah, James Harden is really good. (laughs) As you texted me last night. Yeah, I don't think yeah, I don't think that needs to be reiterated. But I do think, look, there was some question about how he was going to be able to play with other. I mean, KD is not really ball dominant as far as superstars go, but other high usage, high volume scoring players, and I think it's worked out quite well. There, there are some questions on the defensive side of the ball, but the the fit has looked pretty clean to me, and the fact that the Nets have essentially seeded primary ball handling duties to Harden uh, speaks to the level of respect they have for him as a playmaker. I think he's done incredibly well in that role. I, I still think he's doing basically nothing off of the ball, which is something I would like to see more of from him as the season progresses. But because of the fact that honestly, those three guys haven't really played together very much, uh, you know, with all of them spending some time being out of the lineup for one reason or another, that's almost made it moot. And that's the, that's the thing about getting a third superstar is like <laughs> Kyrie and KD can be out of the lineup and James Harden can still carry you to a victory by going for 38 and 11. So yeah, I have no qualms with that. I do, this is jumping ahead, but I know because we've sort of like, we've had this conversation preliminarily that Jimmy Butler is not on either of our all-star teams. And He's been very good as well in limited time. He's played the exact same number of Eastern Conference games this year that James Harden has at 17. So I don't have a great explanation for that from my end. Um, I guess aside from saying, okay, yes, like the games missed does count against you. But if you are like a certain level of transcendent in the games that you have played, then that can supersede the lack of availability. And I guess maybe you could say that Butler hasn't been at that level, but he's been pretty damn good as well. So I think if we're going to, if we're going to put Harden in that mix, we have to wrangle with the fact that we've both seemingly left Jimmy Butler off. Yeah, it's a fair point. I think being on, you know, one of, in my opinion, the best team in the East, but uh, record wise, at least I think the second best team in the East as opposed to one of, if not the most disappointing team in the league thus far. I mean, that that contributes to it. And I know with Butler in the lineup, I believe they are uh, 500 or maybe one game under 500. But 
still, they're not. If if the Heat were world beaters with Butler in the lineup this year, I think both of us would have had him in there. Yeah, that's fair. They they have been quite good with him on the court. They have uh like I think a, a plus four point five net rating, which well, is fair enough. you know, like a fifty plus win team uh over the course of an eighty two game season essentially. So I think he's made a case, but uh let's move on here. Uh second reserve guard spot in the East. I have Jalen Brown. He's uh he's tailed off a little bit lately, but I think and we talked about him on the last episode when we sort of talked about breakout players this year and the leap that he has made as a jump shooter, as a ball handler, as a self-creator, and as a playmaker for others. I still think it's been a little bit up and down in terms of his playmaking. I think he's been a more willing playmaker who is making more of an attempt to be that guy. And he sort of had to because... Marcus Smart has missed a bunch of time. Kemba has missed a bunch of time and hasn't looked like himself when he's played. So more of that has fallen on Jalen Brown. I think it's it's led also to a bunch of turnovers from him. But what he's been able to do as a scorer and the efficiency with which he's done it, uh, I, I think he is more than deserving. And, you know, he pairs that with very solid man-to-man defense. I think his off-ball defense is still fairly spacey. There are a lot of times when he gets lost or gets back cut. But as a one-on-one defender, he's very good. And just given that he he's doing that with the offensive load that he's now carrying, uh, I think he absolutely deserves to be in this game. Should I move us on to the front court in the East? Let's go. All right. First front court reserve pick. Bad timing because he's playing his worst ball of the season right now. But I'm going to give it to Chris Milton. Look, he, yeah. this this should show you how good of a season he's having. That he's played as poorly and shot as poorly as he has for the last five or six games, and especially in these two games against Toronto that they just lost. And yet, even with that slump included in his stats, he is still averaging better than 20 points per game on better than 50, 40, 90 shooting. Like, think about that. Think about, especially when you're a high usage player and a volume scorer, volume shooter, think about the how thin the margin for error is to maintain a 50, 40, 90 split. And this guy's been able to do it despite having a terrible five or six games in a row. So I hope people understand the type of offensive season Chris Middleton is having again. And look on the defensive end, we both agree that he's at least a tad overrated on that end. But the one thing I will give him the benefit of the doubt for is that he is a number two and we've, you know, debated, a number of times on this podcast about whether he's even a good enough number two for you to win a championship, but he's a number two and he's a great number two. And the thing with Chris Middleton is that among the number twos in the league, he's got the closest thing to a number one's burden because of his team's number one's limitations in Giannis Antetokounmpo. And so Chris Middleton is the number two, whatever you want, the second banana, whatever you want to call him. But when crunch time comes, Chris Middleton's the guy that has to carry that team and get them over the hump. And especially, you know, speaking about how he struggled these last two weeks-ish, that burden has increased seemingly tenfold with Drew Holiday out of lineup because now Chris Middleton's really their only guy in crunch time that can create for himself and for others and pull up off the dribble and, and you know, have a shot at making that shot. So 
his defense isn't as good as advertised, and I think it's actually slipped this season as that entire team's has. His offense is starting to slide, but it's still elite. And he's just got a really, I think, underappreciated burden on him on a team that, despite being in the dumps right now, is still really good overall. So I'm not going to let five or six really bad games distract from the fact that Chris Middleton is absolutely still an East front court all-star. And I do think Holiday being out has had a lot to do with his struggles over the last five games. Because, like you mentioned, there is no real escape valve for him. And probably the biggest weakness in Chris Middleton's game is how he struggles with ball pressure. And especially in that two-game set against the Raptors, they are just throwing all kinds of pressure at him. And he quaked. But... The fact is, like, there's no other ball handler really to take that pressure off of him. And so, so much of that responsibility is falling on his shoulders. And, and that's a lot to ask. And I think, you know, when Holiday is out there, the great thing about Middleton as an offensive player is he can be hyper efficient in basically any play type, right? Like you can use him as a pick and roll ball handler and he can dice you up as a pull-up shooter, whether it's from three or whether it's from mid-range. Uh, he can read the defense and and make that pass, whether it's to the roll man or whether it's a skip to the corner. You can use him off ball, coming off of pin downs or spotting up. You can use him out of the post where he can cook basically any smaller defender with those turnaround jumpers. So up until this this rough patch that he hit, I mean, he had been one of the very best shooters in the entire league and also a, a much improved playmaker as well. Um, I actually think... I, I would have had Tatum ahead of him, but not that it really matters. Like Tatum's my next guy as far as front court reserves in the East. Can I mention um, one I, thing before you dive into Tatum? Yeah. Because I think it's a fascinating stat. It covers parts of two seasons now, but and I know Drew has been in and out and it's a new look team. But the core of the team remains the same between Giannis Antetokounmpo, Chris Middleton, and even Brooke Lopez and some other guys. Since starting 52-8 and eight last season, the Milwaukee Bucks are now 20 and 22 over their last 42 regular season games. That is quite the sample size over parts of two seasons that covers almost a full calendar year now, obviously because of the disruptions in the schedule. So, you know, I I don't think they are a, a losing team on balance. I think we both agree they're, you know, still a good team. They're not a below average team, but I think it's, it's almost more concerning when a team as good as Milwaukee is and should be has been that mediocre at best for that sample size. It's concerning. Yeah, and I, I don't want to dwell on this for too long because we have a lot of stuff still to get to on this episode, but you mentioned Middleton's defense and the Bucks' defense as a whole having taken a sizable step back. A lot of that has to do with the changes in their personnel. I mean, losing Bledsoe, losing George Hill, signing Bobby Portis and Bryn Forbes and DJ Augustine, like minus defenders coming off of the bench. But a lot of it to me just has to do with the fact that they're really actually experimenting with different defensive schemes, which is what we have wanted to see from them in the regular season. We have wanted to see Bud be more flexible. We've wanted to see this team in general just be less stubborn, less doctrinaire about the way that they play. And they're actually doing that this year. And it's leading to some real bumps in the road. Like they're very much struggling to incorporate new facets 
of their defensive identity. Um, switching has not gone particularly well. You know, sending two to the ball in the pick and roll has been a struggle for them for myriad reasons, both because, you know, when they're bringing Portis or Lopez up to the level of the ball, those guys aren't doing a particularly good job of recovering. And this is a whole other conversation we can have about Brooke Lopez at a later date because he, he looks washed-ish to me. He hasn't been great. And it's putting a lot of pressure on Giannis, who I think has also taken a step back defensively. And and I just think it's interesting because I, what what would make you, as a Bucks skeptic, feel better about their prospects this season? And I know maybe you'd say nothing would make you feel good about their prospects this season. But, you know, would it make you feel better if they were doing exactly what they've been doing the last couple of seasons and just stomping teams? Or does it make you feel better about their prospects that they are at least experimenting with different stuff so that come playoff time, they can either have the reps to switch up schemes on the fly or at least to know, okay, look, we tried this and we know for sure that it didn't work. And so we're going to use this regular season sample that we've accrued to pick and choose like what we can and can't do and what is going to make us successful. I definitely think it's encouraging that they are experimenting on the defensive end. And you wrote a great piece about this last week, I think, or earlier this week. So I don't want to take that away from them, but I, I'd feel better about them if they were, they don't have to stomp teams at the level they've done the last two years. You know, I mentioned they were 52 and eight at one point last year, and I still didn't believe they were the the best team in the league. So I'm not going to say, you know, they should just take care of business, but it would be nice if while they were experimenting with some new defensive looks, they also showed a consistent capability to pull it off. And that's the thing. You mentioned it. Like with the guys they lost and some of the guys they've added, I don't know they have the personnel to pull it off, right? Uh, I know getting Drew Holiday back is a big boon. Having him in those schemes rather than DJ Augustine or Bryn Forbes is obviously a massive upgrade. But... On balance, I don't think they have the personnel to pull this off. And and I honestly don't think they have the overall top-end talent to do it. So it would I would feel a lot better about the fact I might be wrong about that if they were dominating like they used to in the regular season, right? Because at least then we can say, okay, they're doing it again, but they've also got Drew Holiday now, and here are the things they're doing different. Instead, we're saying, okay, they're doing things different. They also look like a much worse team. Right. Yeah. So well, well, the switching definitely looked way, way better when Holiday was out there. For sure. Because he's basically their best switch defender. And I think yeah. that's a big reason that they actually started switching more is like, you know, before they had Eric Bledsoe, who was this absolute ball hawk, who's among the best in the league, maybe the very best in the league at chasing guys over top of screens. And so it made a lot more sense for them to play the drop coverage when they had Bledsoe at the point of attack rather than Holiday, who is good at chasing through screens, but not at the same level of Bledsoe, but I think is much more flexible as far as the kind of guys that he can switch onto. So I think that we'll start to see that make a lot more sense on both sides of the ball, honestly, you know, because of what we were talking about with Middleton and the ball handling burden that he's had to carry with Holiday out and at the defensive end when he's back in the lineup. But with that, let's move on to Jason Tatum, who is having another masterful season, just continues to get better and better. And to an even greater extent, in my mind, than Jalen Brown is just carrying like a skeleton Celtics crew right now. And I know you can look at that team's record after, you know, they went to the conference finals last year and were 
in my mind, honestly, like the best team in the East. And for them to be struggling to stay above 500 right now might seem like a huge disappointment. But when you consider how bad Kemba has looked when he's played, the fact that Smart has been in and out of the lineup, lately out of the lineup, they lost Gordon Hayward for nothing in the offseason. The the Tice-Tristan Thompson front court hasn't really worked. Uh, the backup guard situation is perilous. The, the bench situation in general is pretty disastrous. And when you look at it from that perspective, the fact that they're above 500 is actually pretty impressive and a major credit to what Jason Tatum has done as a scorer, as a playmaker, as a defender. I just think he's been outstanding. Yeah, look, I've, you know, joked for the last week or two that the the pile of East contenders, you know, they all have some Fugazi in them. And the Celtics, if you look at uh, what's left of their roster right now, are chief among that group, right? In terms of how fraudulent they might be as contenders. But as you mentioned, their record right now isn't so much a disappointment as it is even where it is because Tatum and Brown have been carrying them to respectability this season. So obviously no qualms with Jason Tatum getting a front court reserve spot. I can round out our front court reserves before we get to our wild cards. Look, I was never a fan of this guy. I uh, didn't believe in his, what I, I was going to say what I assumed, but it was, it was empty calories up until this season. But I also don't want to take away from what he's done this season. And this is supposed to be about rewarding guys for the season they're having, not holding things against them from the past or trying to project whether this will be sustainable going forward, which it most likely is not. Julius Randle has (laughs) has been an all-star this season. He is averaging better than 23 points, nearly 11 rebounds, five and a half assists on 48-41 80 shooting he is on track to join Larry Bird and potentially Nikola Jokic this season but if if Jokic doesn't do it it could just be Larry Bird and Julius Randle by the end of the season as guys who have averaged 20 plus points 10 plus rebounds and five plus assists while also being a 40 percent three-point shooter I can't believe I'm saying Julius Randle's in that mix right now again sustainability or not he's doing it right now that's what we're judging him on the Knicks you know I can clown them all I want. At the time we're recording this podcast, at the time we are making these picks, the Knicks, I believe, are seventh in the East. They're a couple games under 500, but look around the East. It's a shit show. Uh, It's not like they're far off the pace. They are right in the thick of things. Look at that roster. It's not good. The main reason they are in the thick of things is because of Julius Randle's play. And he's even taken a big stride on the defensive end. He's still not a great defender, but from where he was to where he is now, it's at least passable and acceptable, especially given the burden he's carrying on the offensive end for a terrible team that is wildly overachieving, chiefly because of him. And, and that team is about seven and a half points per 100 possessions better with Randall on the court. So just overall, I, I feel like I would be kind of overthinking it and outsmarting myself. And trying to convince myself Julius Randle's not an all-star this year. He is this year. Do I think he's one of the best 12 players in the Eastern Conference? Hell no. Do I think he's one of the best 24 players in the NBA? 
Hell no. Do I think he's played like it this season or through the first third of the season? Yes. And I think he should be rewarded for that. And I'll also say that if a guy that we both agreed was an all-star, like a perennial all-star, was having the season Julius Randle's having, I don't think we would hesitate to say that guy's an all-star. But because it seems so ludicrous that Julius Randle's doing it, it makes us second-guess ourselves. Thoughts? Uh, Okay, so I don't disagree with much of what you said. He's not the guy that I would have picked for this last front court spot. I didn't have him in my wild cards either. I had him as kind of a near miss. I do think he he's the biggest reason the Knicks have overachieved. But at the same time, I, I don't think he's the reason that their defense is as good as it is. As much as I agree that he's taken strides, they're third in defensive efficiency. And I think a lot of that has to do with their rim protection, you know, between Mitchell Robinson and Nerland's Noel. A lot of it has to do with opponent shooting luck. Uh, I think they have they still have the lowest opponent three-point percentage in the league. And their offense, which Randall is the biggest driver of, is still like bottom five. Now, uh, it would be way, way worse than that. Like they would be dead last probably by a ways if it weren't for Randall having the season that he's having. But I kind of disagree. I think in a way, I think the opposite. I feel... You know, DeBonta Sabonis, who was an all-star last year, is having basically the exact same season as Julius Randle is. Like, it's actually pretty shocking how similar their numbers are. And they're very similar players with, with similar strengths and weaknesses, right? Like, they're both bigs who can pass really well, who are kind of the hubs of their team's offenses, who can sort of mash smaller guys in the post. Um, who are also improved as shooters and who have the same sort of defensive limitations, right? Where they're not really rim protectors, but they also can struggle a bit guarding out on the perimeter. So they're a little bit between positions. Like they're about as similar, I think, in terms of production and profile as it gets. But here you are picking Julius Randle. I think because of, I mean, whatever, I don't want to speak for you and your thought process, but for a certain number of people, I would imagine the novelty factor of Julius Randle doing what he's doing, the fact that he has taken these meaningful strides, whereas Sabonis is sort of the same guy that he was last year. I actually feel like that might tilt things more towards Randle than, you know, somebody saying, oh, well, Julius Randle has never played at this level before, so I'm not going to vote for him. The thing with Sabonis is like, look at the difference in their supporting cast. And I know the Pacers have been banged up, so Sabonis hasn't even had his optimal supporting cast all year, but still, even banged up, look at his supporting cast most nights and look at the G-leaguers. Well, no, I shouldn't say that. The, the Knicks aren't that bad, but for real, like look at the difference in those supporting casts, even with the injuries to the Pacers. And then consider that as we speak, Randall has that Knicks team within a game and a half of that Pacers team. Yeah, no, that's fair. I mean, I, I actually, w- I wouldn't have picked Sabonis either. I, I would have had Bam as that last forward spot, but I will instead have to bump him down to a wild card spot. So that'll be our first East wild card, Bam Adebayo. Um, did you have him in this mix? Or I did. I had him. I had him as a wild card. So yeah, yeah like, look, we've talked about the disappointment that has been Miami's season so far. I think basically none of that falls on Bam. Uh, obviously they've had so many guys out of the lineup due to 
health and safety protocols and injuries. Butler's missed a ton of time. Dragic has missed a ton of time. Avery Bradley has missed a ton of time. Hero has missed time. And Bam has been the one constant. And even though he hasn't been able to lift the team to any great measure of success, on an individual level, it's very hard to say that like there's anything he could or should have been doing differently, especially with Butler and Dragic having both been out at the same time for a bunch of the season. It's really fallen on Bam to be like the primary creator for that team, like a legitimate point center who has to play make for everybody else and also create for himself. And I think he has done that with aplomb. He is shooting the ball off the dribble at a very high level. Um, his passing has continued to be on point. And, you know, the fact that it's been easier for opponents to kind of scheme against that Miami offense in large part because Dragic and Butler haven't been out there for a lot of the time isn't any kind of reflection on Bam. Like, I think he's having a pretty special season. He's taken his offensive game to new heights. And the defense has still been at an extremely high level, right? Like, he's still up there among the very best switch bigs or, you know, defensive bigs, period, in the league. Uh, And he's anchoring what, you know, in spite of all those absences, remains a top 10 defense. Yeah, I I won't argue Bam on the team. Like I said, I had him in my wild cards anyway. I mean, I had Randall in the front court. I had Bam in the wild card. You could switch those guys up for me and I wouldn't care. But I think Bam is a deserving all-star, which means we've got one spot left on our East teams. And I'm going to throw a bit of a curveball here. So I originally had Ben Simmons here. And look, Ben Simmons is one of the best defensive players in basketball. He often gets the assignment of, he often gets Philadelphia's toughest defensive assignment. You know, and and Philly's been one of the best defensive teams all year. But more of that's to do with Embiid still. Simmons has been insanely good on the defensive end. And he has a very important function in Philadelphia's offense despite his limitations. So I was going to have him as an all-star because I also thought Philly being the best team in the East, a second all-star would do them justice. However, Fred Van Vliet. Yes, (laughs) let's go. If, if I try to talk myself through the reasons why Ben Simmons deserves an all-star spot over Fred Van Vliet, it doesn't actually make sense. Okay, is Ben Simmons overall a better defensive player than Fred Van Vliet because he can just do more things at his size? Yes, won't argue that. But we're still talking about a guy in Fred Van Vliet that, for my money, should be first-team all-defense. My money, too. So, so Go out and spend my money, man. <laughs> so, so this is what I'm saying. Like, if I'm going to give it to Simmons because of his defense. But there's a guy in Fred Van Vliet who's also an Eastern Conference guard who would probably share first-team all-defense honors with Ben Simmons. Except Fred Van Vliet is a vastly, vastly superior offensive player. And I know that's saying something because Ben Simmons, his playmaking and his efficiency inside, you know, it, it, there's value there. I'm not taking away from that, but... What the offensive player that Fred Van Vliet has become, one of the game's absolute most elite volume shooters, a guy that can now pick you apart from the mid-range, ask the Milwaukee Bucks, ask Giannis Antetokounmpo, Fred Van Vliet absolutely torched them 
from the mid-range with his pull-up shooting and his ability to create off the dribble the last couple games. He has become a steady floor general. And again, he mixes all that. And by the way, he's been the Raptors' best player on balance this season. He mixes all that with first-team all-defensive capabilities at the guard position. And then even, you know, okay, you can say, well, look at the Sixers' record. Simmons has been the second best player on that team. Fred, by and large, I don't think he's the best Raptor. I still think that's Kyle Lowry. I still think when Pascal Siakam's at his absolute best, Fred's probably the third best player on this team. But if we're going by what's happened this season, Fred VanVleet's been the Raptors' best player. And oh, by the way, Sixers have a net rating of plus 2.8. The Raptors have a net rating of plus 2.5. The records would indicate that, you know, Ben Simmons has been the second best player for a vastly superior team. The actual process and results and what you can see is that there is not that much difference between these two teams in that logjam of Fugazis in the Eastern Conference. And so I just don't think Ben Simmons has actually done enough to separate himself enough, even on the defensive end, for me to give him this spot over Fred Van Vliet. I do wonder whether perception has caught up to reality when it comes to Fred's defense. Because I agree, like, if if I was picking spots now for all defensive teams, he would be in the backcourt on my all defensive first team. He's been that good, leading the league in deflections. You watch him dig down in the post or swipe down at the ball on drives. Like, his hands are so unbelievably good. Rips and, it right out of Giannis and Tedekumpo's hands on drives, man. And, yeah, I mean, he does that regularly, right? Like, if he's... Whether whether he's sitting on a guy's spin move, whether he's just straight digging down into the post, he's just so opportunistic and so good at using his hands and is also probably the, the single best navigator of screens in the entire NBA. Like, he knows just the right moment to get skinny. Like, he never runs flush into a pick. Um, it's very, very hard to screen him out of a play. And I just think he's been exceptional. He's, I agree, been the Raptors' best player. He's been a leader for that team. And I don't think I agree with you that he's a vastly superior offensive player to Ben Simmons. I think in the half court, that's definitely true. Simmons, obviously like a much, much more dynamic player in transition. That's an area where Fred is still a little bit lacking. Um, And he's still like not the most efficient scorer. He's a 56% true shooting, which is actually in this offensive environment, if you can believe it, below league average. Uh, we know about his troubles finishing at the rim, and he's pretty reliant still on the three ball, but I think he's rounded out his offensive game to the point that he's super effective running pick and roll, you know, as a scorer or as a passer. So I think he's definitely deserving. Um, you made the case for him over Simmons, but I guess given that that's our last wild card spot, we may have to justify having him over not only Ben Simmons, but also Trey Young, Zach Levine. You know, Jimmy Butler, as we mentioned, Sabonis, Vucevic, Drew Holiday, who we talked about his importance to the Bucs, Gordon Hayward, Tobias Harris, (laughs) like a lot of guys. John Collins? Yeah, Collins has been good. I don't think he's quite in this mix with these guys. I think the, the, the guys who I would have closest to putting in that last spot, I think Trey Young is actually the first guy. And I might even, as as highly as I think of Fred and... If you look at the advanced numbers, like 
they pretty much uniformly paint Fred as like a top 15 player in the league this season. I think Trey is the one guy who I might consider putting in there over Fred just because of his irreplaceability to that Hawks team. Like they completely fall apart when he's not on the floor. He hasn't been as damaging to their defense as he's been in the past, at least statistically. And I just think like he, he's such a special offensive player that I don't know. I That's the one where I'm like, I think that the offensive gap between him and Fred might outweigh the defensive gap between them. So he's the guy I would consider. And, and Zach Levine, I mean, preposterous offensive season, 65% true shooting, like on insanely high volume. Like it's, it's really ridiculous what he's doing at the offensive end. But then you look at the on-off numbers and it's like the Bulls are Bulls are way better with him on the bench. They allow 17 more points per 100 possessions with him on the floor. And that's one where I just I don't know. I, that, I couldn't I couldn't justify putting him over Fred. But that's yeah, the case with you, Vooch this year too. He's having a great another great statistical season and a bad magic team is actually better when Vooch is off the court. I understand that one a little bit more though, just because given the injuries that that team's dealing with, he's like playing in a starting lineup with Dwayne Bacon, James Ennis. He's not starting with good players. And so like, okay, the magic have been better when their bench is in the game, but what does that really say? Um, Vooch is a tough cut for me too, because I think he's having an awesome season. I think Sabonis has been really good. Holiday, honestly, like if he hadn't, this is a weird one where it's like maybe even like the, the time that Holiday has missed has been a point in his favor, given how badly the Bucks have struggled without him. But Brogdon's having number, a hell of a year. Sorry, Brogdon. Brogdon's having a hell of a year. Yeah, definitely. So is Tobias Harris, man. Yeah. Tobias Harris is also at 50, 40, 90 right now. And after Embiid has the biggest positive on-off differential on that team. So... Any number of these guys would be deserving. Gordon Hayward, honestly, has been fantastic for the Hornets. Um, these last couple spots were really, really difficult. I'm super happy that you picked Fred because I think he absolutely deserves recognition. But I would have no issue putting Trey ahead of him. I wouldn't really have much issue putting Simmons ahead of him because like, especially for the last month, he's been out of this world. Honestly, any of these guys, I think, would be deserving. Even Zach Levine, who I have not been a big fan of in the past, I think like his shot making this year has been on another level. And another thing that I think is important to point out with the defensive stats is if you separate out the time that he has played with Kobe white, which is obviously a very defensively deficient backcourt. Um, when Levine and Kobe white are on the floor together, the bulls have a one eighteen point one defensive rating and a minus nine net rating. When Levine plays without Kobe White, they have a 106.4 defensive rating and a plus 9.3 net rating. So that's important context. And I think, you know, if if Levine gets the nod on the back of his ridiculous offensive performance, then I wouldn't quibble too much with that either. Look, you we could have constructed two legitimately good star-studded East All-Star teams. I had more trouble cutting guys in the east than i did in the west this year it's true which is really interesting because the east 
in terms of like the team performance has been a dumpster fire to be perfectly honest. And I think it's pretty interesting that (laughs) there have been all these really impressive individual performance in the midst of what's been, you know, a a very disappointing performance on balance for the teams in the East. Uh, So this is where we stand then with our Eastern conference reserves. We've got at the guard spots, James Harden and Jalen Brown at the forward spots, Chris Middleton, Jason Tatum, and Julius Randle and the wildcard spots, Bam Adebayo and Fred Van Vliet. You cool with that? I am. All right, let's take a quick break and we'll move over to the West. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative, yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. Alright, let's pick some Western Conference All-Star Reserves. We'll do it in the same fashion that we picked those from the East. So I guess since you had the last pick in the Eastern Conference, I will start us off in the West. And if we're starting with guards again, I'll just start us off with the very obvious pick. We already talked about it. We both thought he should have been starting. Damian Lillard. This guy somehow just keeps getting better. He is a, an elite offense, essentially, unto himself. And the way that he has kept that Blazers team humming with CJ McCollum out of the lineup. And honestly, like the new additions to that team being fairly disappointing, you know, particularly Robert Covington and him not really having the kind of wing help that it seemed like he was going to have coming into the season after everybody, myself included, really lauded their offseason. It's mostly just been Dame carrying them. And his exploits in the clutch are obviously well-documented, but that team is vastly overachieving and they're overachieving in large part because of how good he has been in crunch time. If you want to hear some of those crunch time numbers. Oh, please, please. The Blazers have played 14 games that have entered NBA-defined clutch time within five points at some point in the final five minutes. During that time, Damian Lillard, Leads the league in scoring with 82 total points, but more impressively, shooting 63 plus percent from the field, 58 plus percent from three point range. The Blazers have gone 11 and three in those games and are better than plus 40 in those clutch time minutes because of one Damian Lillard. He has trademarked Dame time, I believe, now and all the power to him because. It really is Dame time. We've got countless examples over the years of NBA players, pro athletes, giving themselves nicknames that don't add up. Damian Lillard calling crunch time Dame time is one of the most fitting self-ascribed, not even nicknames, but, you know, gimmicks going. It is Dame time. And I mean, yeah, there's a universe in which that could be extremely lame, like him trademarking that him repeatedly doing the the wrist tap. And yet he lives up to it 
to such a degree that every time you just have to respect it. And um, the fact that the Blazers are where they are in the Western Conference, despite another injury riddled season, Dame should absolutely be in the MVP conversation. You know, maybe it's like a down ballot guy, like somewhere between like third to fifth, but maybe third. He's number three, actually, in terms of that list I talked about of the, the amount of times a guy's been the best player on the floor this season behind only Jokic and LeBron now. That, um, and and Terry Stotts deserves a ton of credit as well for just once again, you know, keeping the Blazers afloat despite a litany of injuries. And I know, you know, we, we talked about last season how as a pick and roll scorer, Dame had basically like the best high volume pick and roll scoring season in recorded history. He's been a tiny notch below that this season, but it's been virtually at the same level. He was at 1.15 points per possession last year, and this year he's at 1.12. So he continues to be basically the best pick and roll operator in the league. And yeah, I mean, there's not a whole lot else we need to say about Dame Lillard. He is very clearly the deserving first guy off of the bench for this Western Conference squad. So I'll give uh, our second reserve West guard. This to me was a toss up between two guys that I think are going to both make our team anyway. So I guess it doesn't matter whether one ends up a a regular reserve guard and one ends up a wild card. It matters, Cash. This is for posterity. You need to pick who has been better. I'll go Chris Paul. My man. But. That's the right answer. Yeah. In my opinion. It, it, no, it is. It's. The, it, look, the numbers aren't going to be there for CP. The raw numbers anyway. Because that's just not the type of player he is. He's not as high usage a player. He's not as one dimensional a player. Um, but. You know, for as good as Devin Booker is and has been I don't think Booker's actually been quite as good as we expected he'd be this year and he hasn't been Phoenix's best player Chris Paul has been Phoenix's best player full stop and this is a team that's in the thick of the Western Conference playoff picture that is starting to win close games that they have painfully dropped in years past and it's because of Chris Paul I mean his mid-range numbers are absolutely ridiculous he remains a great defensive player I, I don't know it's it's not as consistent as it once was with him but he's still a great defensive player at the point of attack he still has the ball on a string and opposing defenses on his on a string especially in crunch time and for me it, I mean it came down to him and Donovan Mitchell and Donovan Mitchell has the counting stats Donovan Mitchell plays for what is the best team in the league right now at least record wise so he has a lot going for him but it, it was when it's a toss up between two guys based on performance for me, then it comes down to, okay, if it's a toss up between how they've been this year, then just ask yourself who the better player is. And it's still Chris Paul, even as good as Donovan Mitchell has been. Agree with all of that. He's been the sun's best player. He has been their offensive organizer. He is the guy who very often is getting them across the finish line in the clutch yeah, he's been he's been better than Booker. You mentioned his mid-range shooting. I think he was at like 66% from that right elbow, which he just manages to get to seemingly whenever he wants to, even though everybody knows that's where he's going. And like you said, even though on ball the consistency hasn't really been there for him defensively, like he's just not 
a guy who's going to contain dribble penetration the way that he once could. But you can still switch him onto just about anybody, and he's going to be able to hold his own jostling in the post. He is going to be a disruptor as a team defender. He's had as big a hand as anybody, I think, aside from Mikhail Bridges, in producing a top 10 defense for that team. So he would be uh, my pick for the second guard spot as well. Moving over to the front court, uh, my first reserve pick here is Paul George. Yep. No arguments uh, from he, me. He, he's been out of the lineup for a while, but holy shit, man. <laughs> like he, he was playing so preposterously well. Whether it was just as a shooter, which on its own would probably be enough to get him into the All-Star game because the, the sheer volume and accuracy of his shooting this season has been off the charts. But the defense has also been there. And, you know, the playmaking to me is something that is, it's it's similar to Jalen Brown, I think, in that his attempts to scale up his playmaking have led to him spraying the ball kind of all over the place, you know, for good and for ill. He's committed a lot of turnovers as a result. But I think if you look at the way that the Clippers have sort of reoriented their offense, the increased ball movement, he, he's had the biggest hand in that, I think. Like the way that he has changed his game, he's throwing personally like 18 more passes per game than he did last season. His assist rate has jumped way up. His rate of secondary assists has doubled. And I think that's been a big thing too, right? He's not just passing as a last resort or reacting to what the defense is doing. He's throwing some really impressive skip passes that get the defense moving that won't always lead directly to assists, but will lead to open shots down the chain. And you take that into account, you take the shooting into account. He obviously hasn't been on Kawhi's level, but he's been a pretty damn good 1B for a Clippers team that at times has looked like the best team in the league. As I said before, don't let the recent plight of playoff P distract you from the fact that regular season P or just regular P in general is a pretty damn good NBA player. One of the best, in fact, and an easy pick as an all-star. No doubt. Who you got next? My next guy is another guy that's actually on the shelf right now. So back-to-back West front court players out, plays in LA. It's Anthony Davis. We'll probably have to pick, or we can pick maybe an injury replacement for him at the end of our West picks because it sounds like he's going to be out four weeks after a reassessment of uh, his Achilles issue. So he's not going to play in the game, but he should be honored with a spot because it's Anthony Davis and he is a two-way beast who, as I've said countless times, makes the Lakers matchup proof, was having a phenomenal season, uh, a down year by his standards statistically, but his down year is the type of season almost any other big man on the planet would gladly take. So I can't really listen to any argument for him not being an all-star despite the injuries. Yeah, I don't think anyone would try to make that argument. Um, I think defensively, he's basically been as good as he's ever been. He's having a down year at the offensive end. Um, and, and that mainly, I think, comes down to like his shooting just hasn't been there in the way that it was, certainly not in the bubble, right? When he was just scorching from mid-range. 
And that sort of regressed to like his career norms where he's hovering around 40%, I think, from mid-range as opposed to being up over 50% as he was in the bubble. Um, But he's also doing like a little bit more self-creation, a little bit more playmaking. And I think, you know, we could probably both agree that he hasn't exactly been going all out 100% in every game. There are some times when he's drifted and coasted, but even in that sort of more relaxed approach to the regular season, he's been absolutely outstanding. Uh, I guess that leaves me with the last uh, front court reserve pick. And to me, this is another no brainer. Rudy Gobert, best player on the best team in the league right now. I, I don't, I, maybe some people wouldn't agree that he was the Jazz's best player. To me, I don't think there's any question about that. Yeah. The only he, way you like, don't agree is if you're Shaq or, like Shaq, uh, you seem to not understand what's going on away from the ball or realize that there are two sides to the game and that defense is half the game. He he is their most impactful player. By far. He's the single biggest defensive floor raiser in the NBA. He can put out so many fires on the back end. It gives Utah's perimeter defenders license to do almost anything as far as, you know, applying ball pressure and trying to take away three point attempts, which by the way, the jazz do as well as any team in the league. They're able to limit three point attempts while also limiting attempts at the rim because they can run guys off of the arc and trust that Gobert is going to be there to deter shots in the restricted area. So he makes everything possible for their defense. And I honestly think that his impact on their offense is underrated because Like you watch them play and you see, you know, all the sort of beautiful game stuff that I feel like they've been getting lauded for this season and the way the ball really pops and how well they move it. But I think so much of that is made possible by the attention that Gobert can garner as a rim runner. And like his role gravity unlocks so many playmaking avenues and... I know it's become kind of like a joke and a punchline, like the screen assist thing, but you know, the power of his, his screen and roll game is not just in the screens themselves, which are very good, but his instinct for like how long to hold the screen, when to slip out and then how hard he rolls to the rim, just watch them and see how many times he manages to take two guys with him and how often that leaves somebody wide open on the weak side and how good the Jazz guards have gotten at reading the coverage, how easy it makes it for them, honestly, because like either there's going to be the tag from the weak side, and that's going to leave the skip pass open, or the tag's going to come late, and Gobert is going to have the free roll to the rim. Like he, His timing and the aggressiveness with which he rolls is a huge elixir for that jazz offense. And as much as like, I, I think his impact overwhelmingly comes on the defensive side of the ball. He's also a massively impactful offensive player, even if it's not sexy. A player whose offensive impact is sexier and is probably, the, probably Utah's most important offensive player is where I'm going with our first wildcard spot. It's Donovan Mitchell. I gave Chris Paul the edge in, in terms of the actual reserve guard spot, but I think Donovan Mitchell needs to be on an all-star team. You know, 23-plus points, 5-plus assists, 4-plus rebounds on solid efficiency while carrying the offensive load for the best team in basketball right now. To me, I, I don't want to be one of the guys that's just like, well, they, they need two all-stars. Like, it has to be done. 
but it's not like we have to stretch, you know, to find a second all-star and give a guy an undeserving spot. I think Donovan Mitchell is a worthy all-star. And, you know, I think as we both agreed, especially early in this season, much of Utah's improvement from last year was simply just that they got the Mike Conley that they thought they were getting last year. And that was a huge development for them. But the team has kept rolling without Mike Conley. And yeah, Rudy Gobert's defense and the team's, um, the roster construction and the excellence of everyone overall and Quinn Snyder's coaching, they all get credit for that. But offensively, the biggest reason they have continued to do what they do since Mike Conley went down is because Donovan Mitchell just... With him, it's not like there's been this one giant leap to superstardom, and maybe he's not even quite there yet. But I do feel like as as the number one guy offensively on a contender, he just makes strides all the time. And he seems like a more mature player all the time. He seems like he's kind of a more poised player as time goes on. We saw it in the playoffs last year until he was you know outdone by Jamal Murray. But yeah, I just think he he's approaching that territory where... Um, you know, it's it's hard to doubt him as the number one guy on at least a quasi-contender. And the Jazz certainly are that right now, and he has been the number one guy on that team. So I, I got to give him an all-star spot. I think it's deserved. Uh, I, I wouldn't have any issue with picking Conley ahead of him. I do think, you know, it's kind of the opposite of what we talked about with Drew Holiday, where the time missed can work for or against you, I suppose. And like the Bucks going into the tank without Holiday maybe amplifies his value in a lot of people's minds where like Conley being out in the jazz, just keep rolling teams haven't missed a beat at all. Maybe makes people recalibrate how important he actually was to their success. And I do think even when Conley was healthy and playing and his impact stats were way ahead of Mitchell's, the on off data was like screaming out that Conley was a a bigger driver of winning I do think we still need to contextualize that for one thing, like Conley was spending the vast, vast majority of his minutes playing with Gobert and Mitchell is getting to do that now. Whereas like with the Jazz's stagger patterns, he was spending more time playing without Gobert uh, and having to carry a heavier load in that way. And that was affecting his on off numbers, but also just like he's, he, he has to do more, right? Like Conley did not have the level of, of scoring responsibility that Donovan Mitchell has. And you can say that Mitchell can get tunnel vision and be a bit of a black hole and that individual scoring is overrated. And I wouldn't necessarily disagree with you on any of that, but at the end of the day, like somebody still needs to score the ball. Like somebody still needs to put pressure on the opposing defense. And the Jazz do that by committee, but in crunch time, you know, like when they need to turn to somebody to get them a bucket, Mitchell is the guy that they're essentially asking to bail them out. And he's the guy I think who is putting as a ball handler, putting the most pressure on opposing defenses. And I certainly think that he deserves to be recognized for that. So that leaves us with one and many, many like in the East deserving candidates who are unfortunately going to have to get left out. Some runners up uh, Conley, of course, DeMar DeRozan. DeMar DeRozan's the right, the correct answer here, by the way. DeRozan was a tough cut. He's having sneakily a very good season. I think, you know, he's he's been the best player on an overachieving Spurs team, uh, has basically been their point guard, and his playmaking has been sharp as ever. 
Uh, he's also been great as a scorer in the clutch. Uh, De'Aaron Fox, who has taken his game up another level this season. I, I just, I think a lot of what the Kings were doing as hot as they were for that stretch was unsustainable and a little bit of smoke and mirrors, but take nothing away from De'Aaron Fox. He's been awesome. Uh, shooting more threes, shooting them more accurately. Obviously he's, he's maybe the fastest player in the league with the ball in his hands and he's ripping defenses to shreds at the point of attack. Uh, Devin Booker, who despite, you know, I think taking a small step back as we've alluded to has still been really good. Uh, especially like he started out slow, but over the last month or so, he's been awesome. <clears throat> Christian Wood, another guy who time missed, I guess, counts against him, but the extent to which the Rockets have fallen apart without him should give people an even better sense of how valuable he was when he was playing. Uh, Brandon Ingram, uh, Zion Williamson, both those guys have been excellent on the offensive side of the ball for the Pelicans. But the guy I wound up picking was Shea Gilgis Alexander. He, he beat out that entire field because I have been so impressed with his ability to control a game, to puncture a defense with his repeated drives to the rim, um, his ball control, his multi-level scoring ability. Like he's shooting it really well from three and he shoots it great from mid-range and from floater range. Like he's got all those floaters in his bag from either foot, from any angle. He's finishing really well at the rim and, and it's, all resulted in what's been a, an extremely efficient offensive season, which as we talked about last episode to do that with the minimal amount of offensive talent he's working with around him is very, very hard to do. And I just couldn't keep him off my team. Maybe it's just because I'm, I'm biased because I love watching him play so much, but I honestly think he's deserving of this last spot. Look, I, I love watching SGA. I, you know, when I wrote about the Thunder last week, I wrote about how while they're the peskiest bad team right now and the most prom promising bad team of the future, the bridge that connects those two periods is Shea Gilgis-Alexander because I truly believe he is proving to be the type of foundational star that you can b construct a future championship around. Now, whether he ends up being the best player on that team, the second best, whatever, he, he can be one of the foundational stars on a future championship contender. I will take nothing away from what he has done this season. To score at the volume and efficiency he has while also being the lead ball handler for a team as anemic, for a supporting cast as anemic as the one he's playing with, with so few release valves around him, it is stunning the efficiency with which he is scoring and playing on the offensive end. The effort on the defensive end is there. I, you know, it, it's hard to be a great defender at the point of attack given his offensive burden. I think, you know, if, if you just look at his length and his build, like, I, I think he'll be I think he'll be a really good defender in the NBA. I think it's it's taken a step back, but it's the effort is there. The one thing I'll say, and it's something you noted with Randall, for example, when you said that, like, you know, the, he's the only reason or the, the biggest reason the Knicks are good or, or even respectable not even respectable on the offensive end. They're a bad offensive team, but if it wasn't for him, they'd be worse. But it's the same thing with OKC and Shea, right? I think they're a bottom three or bottom four offensive team by efficiency. And it's just, well, if you take Shea off the team and you look at what their offensive efficiency would be uh, in the minutes without Shea this year, they would actually have the worst offensive rating of any team in the last six years. 
So the fact that OKC is like 26 this year in offensive rating is actually a miracle. Right. So you can't, you can't knock Shea for that bad offense. Um, having said all that, and, and as awesome as I think it would be to see him make an all-star team already, I, I, I would have given that spot to DeMar DeRozan. Well, guess what? If we're going to do this injury replacement for Anthony Davis. That's called a segue, my friend. That's your pick. I made the last one. So give us our injury replacement. It's DeMar DeRozan. He went from a perennial all-star in the East to missing out um, on the festivities. His first two years in San Antonio quietly had an excellent season last year. I think more people are paying attention this year, though maybe still not enough. He's been fantastic. We can, look, we can talk about his limitations um, for the rest of his career on the defensive end and shooting, even though, I mean, he's actually been a respectable three-point shooter this year. But in general, look, we know his limitations. We know the reasons why it is tougher to construct a roster around him than it is with a traditional star. But, I mean, this guy, he's a smooth pick-and-roll operator who is now among the league's most capable playmakers. He can play up-tempo in the San Antonio's more workable smaller lineups, but he's also comfortable slowing the game to a crawl and kind of lulling defenders if need be. His footwork in the post is impeccable. A plethora of moves and counters to get around basically any defender. Uh, he's virtually unstoppable getting to his spots and getting his shot off once there, make or miss. He parades to the free-throw line. He is the best player on, as you mentioned, a Spurs team that's wildly overachieving and that is right in the thick of things in the Western Conference. I would have had him as a all-star wildcard reserve. Anthony Davis's injury is giving us the ability to pick an injury replacement. If there's an injury replacement for Anthony Davis and DeMar DeRozan still doesn't make the all-star team, I'd consider that a, a travesty. And I'm I'm concerned. I'm concerned that he won't because if he doesn't, I'm hoping he just makes the team outright, which I think he might be able to do. But if he doesn't, my concern would then be that the injury replacement, which is selected, I believe, by Adam Silver, yeah, might go to someone like a Zion or, I don't know, a younger player maybe that people see as more exciting. Um, I don't and think I hope- Zion would be an undeserved pick, though, with the way that he has played. He's, he's playing absolutely incredible on the offensive end and like we're comparing two guys who you know neither of them are a defensive force but I think Zion especially early in the season his effort on the defensive end is a big reason why this the Pelicans dug themselves the hole they did and I think DeMar's consistency should be rewarded I think that's fair um I think Zion would be an acceptable pick he's honestly been that good offensively just completely unstoppable maybe the single most efficient scorer in the league uh, cannot keep him away from the rim. And yes, the defense is what's holding him back. I do think, you know, we talked about some effort stuff with him earlier in the season. I think that's improved, even though the sort of scheme awareness and the understanding of help rotations is still lacking. Um, He's been better, but like the Pelicans have been as a team, a tire fire at the defensive end. And he might be the single biggest reason for that. So I don't think that's a bad reason to keep him off the team as transcendent as he's been offensively. And then, you know, with guys like like Conley and Booker, who are also tough cuts, I mean, if we're replacing AD, we have to replace a front court player. And I think DeMar historically has been a guard, but he's almost exclusively playing at the three and the four 
this year. So I, I think it would come down to like him, Zion and Christian Wood basically. And I would be happy with any three of those guys getting picked. And one thing that is worth pointing out with DeMar, and it's something we've talked about before and something I've just been feeling for a long time about the construction of the Spurs roster. It's never worked with him and Aldridge together. And it makes his on-off stats look terrible because he does still spend a lot of time on the court with Aldridge. But this year, 381 minutes with DeMar and Aldridge both on the court, minus 9.3 net rating. 454 minutes with DeMar and no Aldridge, plus 5.2 net rating. That roster just makes so much more sense without Aldridge. And look, he's had a great career. I've long been an admirer of his game and just like the metronomic consistency with which he's played, but it's not working anymore. He's such a huge defensive liability that isn't bringing enough, you know, nearly enough at the offensive end to offset that. And I just think it's nice to see that DeMar is really gelling with the Spurs young core and it can still really work with him, especially when they bump him up a position and mitigate his shooting deficiencies sort of in that way, Um, spring him loose as a playmaker and spread the floor for him a little bit better. So yeah, you filter out those minutes with him and Aldridge and like his on-court numbers actually look quite good. DeMar's free agency is going to be really fascinating this year because he has, you know, changed and improved and refined his game in ways, his offensive game, I should say, in ways that make him a lot more malleable for like for different teams now. You can plug him into a a lot of different teams, including some like semi-contenders, and see how it fits now, as opposed to a couple years ago when I think it was a lot harder to do that. So, you know, maybe he doesn't get max money again. He He probably won't, given the stage of his career, but he's going to get paid again. And I think, you know, if he lands in the right spot, like, could actually move the needle for a team very close to contention. Yeah, I, I think what makes it tough is like the fit, obviously, and his age. Right. And like, you know, what, what kind of term is a team willing to give him? He's almost in the perfect situation now with the Spurs, honestly, where he can kind of be the old head veteran who is raising the floor and helping those young guys to flourish in a way. And there aren't championship expectations on that team, but he's enabling them to be in the playoff mix. Like that seems like the perfect situation to, to me uh, for him to be in. So maybe they'll try and bring him back, but questions that will be answered in due time. So our official Western conference reserve picks are in the backcourt, Damian Lillard and Chris Paul in the front court, Paul George Anthony Davis and Rudy Gobert and the wildcard picks, Donovan Mitchell, Shea Gilgis, Alexander, Anthony Davis injury replacement is DeMar DeRozan cash. Are you okay with this? I'm okay with it. Never, Um, never satisfied. Well, it's okay. One thing I I also want to say before we sign off here is just there again, like we've mentioned are a, a lot of deserving candidates who both on our ballots and ultimately based on the coaches picks are going to get left out. And a lot of them are going to have really strong statistical cases to be all-stars. And I think 
it's it's worth keeping in mind and maybe recalibrating expectations based on this season's absurd offensive environment. And whether it's just because, you know, of the uptick in three-point shooting, the fact that teams are, are putting more shooters on the floor and there's more space, there's more pace, whether it's the benefits of guys shooting in empty gyms or just basic offensive evolution, like whatever the case is, teams are scoring at ridiculous rates this year. Um, one illustration of that, Dallas set the all-time record for offensive efficiency last year, 115.9 points per 100 possessions. There are five teams currently scoring at that rate or better this season. There are seven teams that are scoring more efficiently than the 2016-17 Warriors. And, uh, you know, we kind of used to think of, of league average true shooting being around 55%. That's now 57%. So it's like the, these sort of magical benchmarks, like, you know, 50, 40, 90, or 60% true shooting, these things that used to scream out certified all-star are no longer that distinct. So, you know, if it, whether it's a player like Zach Levine or Tobias Harris, who has quote unquote, all-star numbers, because that's sort of the way the league as a whole has been trending. And there are so many guys around the league who are doing that. I just think you need to kind of contextualize that and recalibrate what an all-star actually is in 2021. No arguments from me there. Um, I'll say uh, for fan shout outs, we will get to Patrick Taylor in Innisfilled, Ontario. We've gone a little long on this episode, so maybe we can save the answer to his question for next week. Um, so Patrick, we, we're going to answer your question. It was a fun question and we will get to it next week. But for now, I at least wanted to give you the shout out. Says he's been a Pound the Rock fan since 2018 when he first tuned in to hear our take on the Kawhi Leonard DeMar DeRozan trade. And uh, he says we been his go-to hoops podcast since then so thank you for the support patrick we will get to your question next week it'll be fun to answer it and the only other call out i'll have you know in addition to reminding all of our listeners as usual to reach out on social media give us your feedback let us know where you're listening from how long you've been a listener we'll get you a shout out on a future episode i i also wanted to uh call out because i i i need to hear from somebody and know why this happened but according to our podcast analytics for some random reason, last week's episode, the second most listened to Pound the Rock City last week was Leeds, England. Okay. <laughs> Don't know how that happened. So I'm going to put it out there. If you're listening to this from Leeds, England, hit us up because it, it was very strange to see that in our analytics. You know, it's usually uh, Toronto's usually our most listened to city. And then there's, you know, a, a sprinkling of other American and Canadian cities, but it's obviously mostly North American because we cover the NBA. And as noted in previous fan shoutouts, you know, we've had, uh, Nuno in Portugal. We've had, uh, someone reach out from Brazil, uh, I think from Denmark one time, which is cool, but to see enough people in one city in England, uh, randomly be after Toronto for where the majority of our listens came to. Um, yeah. Uh, I think it, it it just really stunned me. So I'm putting the call out there. If you're listening to us from Leeds, England, reach out on social media. Love to hear from you. With that, yeah, let I'll, us uh, know what we can do to retain you as listeners. Yeah. I guess. Um, all right. With that, we have made our All Star Reserve picks. 
for both conferences in a game that should not be happening, but will happen anyway. And uh, I don't know when they're actually going to announce the reserves. I guess next next week, probably sometime. I feel like they usually announce them a week after the starters. Yeah. Yeah, um, next week's the reserves, and the week after that is uh, the captains picking their teams. Right. So we will see, I suppose, uh, whether the coaches agree with us or not. But those are our picks that Cash and I had to, in some cases, compromise on, but mostly agree upon together. And we will leave you there. So for Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon. We'll talk to you all soon. Pound the Rock. 